0: Well, let's get started. Um, Welcome everybody, good to see you. You're so spread out, Mike. You're not going like this all the time, but that's all right. We're in chapter 12 of the book of Romans. I want to key in again on chapter 12, verse nine, go through, Lord willing, the end of the chapter, the end of this paragraph. On the board, I put um, just a little schematic that is a way in which to organize a lot of material here among other things as we've talked before chapter 12 verse 1 through the end of the book is answering a question what does the justified life look like and uh i'm not going to review all that again because we work through this slowly because goodness we only are in verse 9 uh, in terms of, of where uh where we where we are in our study this is profoundly important because all of the factual material on justification and everything that's developed in the first eleven chapters are heavily theolo- theological, very doctrinal. But doctrine without transformation is just filling people's heads with with facts. God wants them to under wants us shouldn't just say them wants us to understand sound doctrine, but it should change our lives. God's word is to be the means by which God transforms us. And without transformation, then this kind of a study, without the change that God wants, this kind of study is just an intellectual exercise. That's not all God's interested in. He wants us to, tra- to have our minds transformed. He wants us to think differently. But it also should affect how we live. So what I've called this are, are the virtues of the justified person person has been justified what are the virtues we will see what what are the virtues that the holy spirit who is the key uh, center of the new covenant the sign of the new covenant and so on what will the holy spirit be doing what would be the fruit that he's producing in our lives well there are a lot of ways to look at it here so notice what i've done first of all these virtues will be reflected in how we look at and regard other believers there are 12 virtues listed there, And then he lists the virtues that will be manifested in how we relate to unbelievers. So right left, right left. So we're going to start with this. That's how Paul starts in verse 9. Now, some of this we've already covered, but you, when we're done with it, you will see 12 different virtues that he itemizes here. Some of this we already talked about. Verse 9, let love be genuine. And the word there is love, is agape. Uh, Again, I think we've covered a little bit of this. But is agape, that self-sacrificing, other-centered love. But genuine. Now, this this is really an important thought. T.A. Carson, in his marvelous book, Showing the Spirit, which is a study of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, says that agape love is that one virtue which cannot be faked. You can fake brotherly love. You can fake friendship kind of love. But the agape, other-centered, self-sacrificing love is genuine. You cannot fake that. And I think Carson is right there. That's what Paul's getting at here. Let your agape be genuine. You can't fake it. You can't put the facade. You can't pretend. For a very short period of time, you may be able to do that, but not consistently as God wants. So that, that's the first one. And it is all, I think, all the time, if not almost all the time, in the New Testament, when the virtues of the Christian life are listed, love is always first. That makes sense. That's reasonable, but it's the key of of the christian uh, of the Christian virtues now second is abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good that's the second virtue now when you first read that that's not difficult to understand what he's saying because he's putting the two opposites abhor evil cling to, hold fast to, and that word particularly has the idea of hold fast to like you do when something is glued to your finger, <laughs> so that's a really strong uh, adherent to that which is good. But let's, let's think about those words. First of all, the word abhor, I, I read from the ESV translation, I'm not sure what all the different translations have, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be close to abhor if that isn't going to be the consistent translation. But if you abhor something, that's not a word that commonly people use. I mean, I don't think I've heard somebody use the word abhor in the last ten years. That's not vocabulary people normally use. But it's not an unknown word to you. If you abhor something, what does that mean? You hate it. You hate it. Yes. What Chuck? Detest. Detest it. Good. I mean, you're just strong. Despise. Despise. that's, that's even stronger. And if you if you despise, you detest, you you hate something, what are you gonna do? You're gonna stay away from it. You're 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 not even gonna get close to it. I mean, the idea of a poor and all the different synonyms that you all surfaced, the, the idea of that is is you're gonna stay as far away from that as you can. Because I mean it's not something you wanna get close to, it's not something you wanna taste a little bit of it. No. To abhor evil is you stay as far away as you can from it. Now, the word evil is not a difficult word to understand at all. But remember that evil has both a personal aspect to it as well as a powerful aspect to it. The personal aspect is it's associated with a person, Satan. It's associated with the created being of God who was at the top of God's hierarchy of, of, of beings. He was the angel that served God. Ezekiel 28, 12, and following chosen side. Nonetheless, so it's abhorring, detesting, staying away from, all the stuff that we talked about. I would mean, see the person of Satan, but also all of the acts associated with him and all the acts associated with the sinful life. Because Paul talks about this in Ephesians too. Before we began our walk with God, we were, in effect, walking in the paths of the devil, walking in the paths of the evil one, he says. And so now we abhor that. We stay as far away from it as we possibly can. But the counter to that is, so in my translation, I have a semicolon between evil and hold. Hold fast to what is good. And good is agathos, but good is always associated with the virtue of God. We say over and over again, God is good. The first prayer my mother taught me that I was supposed to be saying at, at, at dinner time was, God is good, God is great. Do you remember that prayer? Any of you ever learned that as a child? And the very, very first thing out of your mouth, God is good. And so if, if evil in the, is epitomized by evil Satan whom God created and he led the rebellion against God. And God is the epitome of good. So, I mean, you can personalize it as well as focus on all of the outcomes of God as the outcomes of Satan and so on. But this is really important. As with all of these virtues, these are commands. If you want to put it in English grammar, these are verbs in the imperative mood. They are to be ab- obeyed. So virtue, this is the word I'm using here, virtue is not a passive thing. The pursuit of virtue is not passive. The pursuit of virtue is active. If I say those sentences, do you know what I mean by that? Okay, one man is shaking his head, the rest of you are playing living statues. So are you with me on this? Yes. When I say, I mean, the pursuit of virtue is not passive it's active it is an active intentional willful obedience and so that second verse particularly abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good can i extend that just a little bit further that demands a strategy to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good demands a strategy in our life it demands that you begin, as a believer now, justified, declared righteous, that's your standing for God, in your walk with him, in your walk of loving obedience with him, you will develop a strategy to stay as far away from evil things as you can. A lot of times we can't avoid you; It just shows up. But there are things we can intentionally do to stay away from, to show our... our our detestation that we detest evil, we abhor and, and and hate evil. That requires a strategy. And so in in my own personal life, and I won't talk about it in details, but in my own personal life, there were things I began to understand. This is back when I first came to Christ, but in the years that followed, I began to understand that if I did this, 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 this would be the result. It was never a positive, it was always an evil result. So what I had to do was learn to Stop it right here. Not do this. Not and this wasn't evil, but I knew that this would lead to this, and this would lead to this, and this would lead to 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 sinful act. So that strategy of aborting evil, again, I'm getting I'm keying in, it's not passive, it's active. It demands a strategy. And you have to figure it out. I think someone wants in. I was cleaning my
1: glasses, but I didn't have a question.
0: Um, well, you may, you're a multitasker. You clean glasses and ask, them, ask questions at the same time. Ahead. it's a new skill. Um, but i have
1: always thought that if you want to get rid of a bad habit, you, it's a losing battle to just trying out, just thinking about it. So you need to replace it with a good habit.
0: Exactly. Think about the good habit instead.
1: Exactly. And I certainly uh, I buy in hundred percent to the
0: pursuit of virtue as an active sport. It's yeah. not a spectator sport. Exactly. Well, you you illustrate you illustrated that very well, Rob. And that's what that's what Paul's doing here. You're a poor, evil. Hold fast to good. As you a poor evil, you were replacing it with. The Greek word is like glue. Hold fast. That which is good. And that's part, uh, I, w- I was going to talk a little more about that in, in my own personal strategy. As I developed staying away from these things, I tried to substitute with something else. And so that's exactly what Paul is saying here. So this is, these words, a poor word is evil, hold fast to what is good, is conceptual. It's a conceptual idea. Now you have to take that conceptual idea and apply it to your life. What is the evil in your life that you need to abhor?
1: And God will help us with that, right? That's
0: something that we're struggling Absolutely. with and, and us, He will be there to help us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, this second virtue, love must be genuine. I talked about that. It's nothing, not something you can fake. But with that goes, now, lifestyle issues abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, the third virtue, he uses a different word for love here. In verse 10, the third virtue is love one another with brotherly affection. And so um, the, the, the term there is a different term for love, but it, and it's fleshed out, it's wonderfully fleshed out in what he states, with brotherly affection. So this is brotherly, sisterly love. Now, Again, we're talking about the virtues that we exhibit in the power of the Holy Spirit to our believers. So the early church found itself in a very interesting situation. They were running around calling one another brothers and sisters. And the Greco-Roman world was looking at and listening to what they were doing. And so one of the legal charges that was leveled against the early church, I mean the very early church, early decades, into the first century was, you guys are committing incest, which is just ludicrous. I mean, that's ridiculous. But in the Greco-Roman world, you didn't run around and call your, your friends or your neighbors brothers and sisters because we're in the family of God. And brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord is one of the ways which we reflect that new relationship. In the church, we're, in a, we're a family Heavenly Father is our Father, so that relationship is symbolized by what we call each other. That's what Paul's getting at here. So you you have a love for other members of the body of Christ, like you do, a brother and sister. It's now family love. It's the affection of family love. Where you you affectionately care for one another. You you pray for one another. You help meet one another's needs in, in times of... Of difficulty it might be physical financial emotional whatever needs are be might be and so again this is honestly men you and i read a, a part of a verse like verse 10 and we say yeah I've heard it a lot but in the first century you have no idea how radical this was to see People who had been Greco-Roman people come to faith in Christ and everything in their life begins to fundamentally change. And then you observe that good night on Sunday morning, they're going to a house, all worshippers and house churches, and they're sitting and they're spending most of the day together. They're sitting in worship service. They, they're sharing in a, something called communion. And they're giving each other holy hugs and holy kisses. And they're calling each other brothers and sisters. Can you think of anything more countercultural than that? For you and me, that's part of your life. You've done that. Some of you have known the Lord since you were a child. You've done that all your life. But these people are coming out of a pagan Greco Roman culture, coming into this counterculture called the church, and they're exhibiting virtues that nobody else has seen. And this brotherly love, this, this brotherly affection toward one another, the word is phileostorgai. You know, that doesn't mean anything to you. But Paul's combining two Greek words that mean love, the leo and storgei, and putting them together. You love one another as brothers and sisters with the affection that goes with brothers and sisters. And so it's it's reflecting you're now the member of a new family. You have a biological family, but now you have a spiritual family. And those virtues reflect that. Isn't that, that's kind of neat. I know you don't get excited about biblical truth, but that's, it's one of those things that you just, when you try to put it back into the context of the early decades of the first century, you can see why this, this new movement, Christianity, turned the world upside down because nobody else, nobody else was living like this. Um, everything Jesus talked about and
1: taught has some reference in uh, Jewish traditions or in the Old Testament
0: for the most part that's right for the most
1: part Anyway, then you gave it different meanings different side of it and it just made it more clear and, and
0: identified with the New Testament that's right uh, what about love and sis- sisterhood and brotherhood there was any reference in the Old Testament
1: about loving God love one another in, in, in the Jewish tradition I, that's something that I've always been wondering about and I, I don't see any.
0: Well, I think you see you see it in Leviticus 19, where in and again this is in the law, but in the context of how you relate to other people, love love one another, love your neighbor, your across the farm, across the across the hill, love your neighbors, you love yourself that's that's in leviticus i think it's leviticus 19 18 about so there you see and jesus when he's asked the, the question by the pharisees what's the greatest commandment he says well you love god with your heart soul mind and strength and you love your neighbors yourself both of those he's quoting from the old testament and then in matthew's account of that it's very very profound and jesus says the entire law is suspended the greek word means is suspended by these two so love Loving God, loving people, is how you really understand and apply the law. The typical Jewish person in the first century did not think that way. So Jesus is saying the fundamental suspension of the law is relational. It's a relational love. So it was. But for the, God. The, it's, the, oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Up to, be, to make it like the suspending of. The, well, he's, he's explaining something that they should have understood. But they did, because they're having in the first century of the they're having this debate of the ten, what's the greatest one? And Jesus didn't affect them. You guys are missing the whole point. It isn't keeping meticulously and rigidly, legalistically, these ten statements. It's your relationship with me, and that's what's really important. And my law defines how you do this in a fulfilling way, because I want to walk with you, but I'm holy. You're not. Here's how you walk with me. I'll atone for your sins through the sacrifices. And I'm giving you the instructions of how you walk with me. So that everything you do, you think of me. So Jesus expands on that, but he's defining something they should have understood. <coughs> but Jesus says this too. And this is in John's gospel. And the first epistle of John Roy develops it. They will know you are my disciples when they see how you love one another. them. And that's what Paul's talking about here. People will know that you are my followers. It's Jesus talking. That you're following me when you exhibit these. Not when you keep meticulously some legalistic set of standards some human being makes up. It's when you walk with me in love and walk with others in love. One time when I was teaching this, a guy said, (coughs) you're a member of the family, you love one another like you love brother and sister." The guy said, but I don't like my brothers and sisters. I don't have any relationship with my brothers and sisters. It's a terrible analogy. Illustrated some other way. And I thought, well, I can illustrate it another way. But at least conceptually, we understand what he's saying. That we are in a new family. We're in the family of God. And we treat one another with the family affection of a brother and sister. Fourth virtue. I I love, I read from the ESV translation, I love how the ESV translates this. Outdo one another in showing honor.
1: Outdo one another with showing honor.
0: Well, the language there is like the language of competition. That you're in a competition with one another in the body of Christ. Outdo one another in showing honor. And I mean, I don't think he needs to say this, but obviously to clarify it. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Now the Greek word for honor is tine, which is doesn't mean anything to you, but it's a it's a wonderful word in the New Testament. And I think we can, we can understand it when we start thinking in English. If you use the word honor, I honor that person. I honor my mother. I honor my dad. I honor my boss. I, I honor my, 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 uh, my spouse, my
1: wife, or whatever. What do we mean by that? Pay deference to.
0: Okay, it could be pay deference to them. Steam. Steam, hold them, hold them up, uh, hold them up, hold them high And high regard, yep. high respect. Give an award that is not necessarily a trophy, but you know, um, a compliment could be honoring or a thank you or. Okay, I mean, you you jammed a whole bunch of illustrations Russ into your into your your answer, and that's good. It's. It's one, of those, it's one of those terms, honor, we pretty much know what it means. But he, notice how he put, it, he put it, he put it in a way that you are active in showing honor. And so he says, outdo one another in showing honor. He doesn't say show honor. His command is, his imperative is, outdo one another in showing honor. So it's, you go to Almost unimaginable limits in showing respect, dignity, worth value of one another, so to show honor to someone could could be a simple act of holding the door for someone uh, when they 're entering a room, or as Fred just did, he showed honor. When my coffee was inadvertently spilled, he went and got some napkins so I could still enjoy the cup of coffee. That may be stretching a little bit. But, I mean, to do something extraordinary to show the respect, dignity, and I'll use the word, the honor we have for fellow Christians. Because remember, these are virtues we're manifesting toward other believers. There's another area of unbelief. That's not what he's talking about. So in the church, and I'm talking about in you know think of a local church now, but in the church, what would be ways in which we can outdo one another and showing honor to one another? What would be sometimes we'll do? Huh? Like uh it's like I can elevating somebody, uh, my fellow brother above above ourselves. It's elevation of that person, like me feeling like I'm I'm
1: uh, gonna I'm gonna put you on a higher level than me. So we all elevate each other above ourselves.
0: Okay. It's instead of self-elevation, we're elevating others.
1: So I'm going to you the high school,
0: What would be some ways in which we do that with other believers, besides helping wake up, build coffee, opening the door for them? Okay. Them. Welcoming them. Yeah. Well, opening the door is is a strong syndicate leading by example.
1: Mm. Good. Good. It Okay. Anybody?
0: Glenn? Glenn? Yes? Oh, I thought you said something. I'm oh, sorry. No. Your no, you're light went on and I thought you said something. With, with not honoring somebody, sending them a little note or a card or an email or a text. I always add those today because that's just <laughs> telling them how much they mean to you. Thank you yesterday. My, my wife does this all the time. Thank you yesterday for the broad smile that I saw on your face when I greeted you in church yesterday. You married out. Believe me, you don't have to tell me that. <laughs> I know that every single day of my life. Or, or, or things like you sent him a little card, you know, a thank you note. Thank you for, thank you for your expression of Christian love yesterday. As I watched you with your children, yeah, you know, it's those, That's honoring someone. It's going out of your way because. To intensely, you know, again, wait. But I'll do one another. That's, that takes action. That's not passive. It's impossible to be passive in this command. Outdo one another, showing on. it's impossible for them to be passive. That demands action. What what my wife does, and and I'm sure you guys would share the same thing, is she thinks of ways to honor people. And most of the time, no one knows it except Peggy and the, the person that she's. She's uh, writing it to, or whatever she's doing. So to show honor to someone, elevate that person. Uh, I like think Russ said, put them, put them like on a pedestal. It, it, that's this is nothing to do with pride, it doesn't have to do with arrogance. It's I'm treating someone with the honor they deserve as a fellow believer. Something I appreciate. And what happens as a result of that is there's encouragement, there's edification. And there's now the stimulation for that person to keep doing what they're doing if you're showing them off. Or just simply, because the, the concept of Tamei has also the idea, because, because of how God views this person, I view that person in the same way. As of infinite worth and value to him, therefore they're of infinite worth and value to me. So, I mean, it's each one of these virtues that we could spend an hour on, for goodness sakes. But it's just, it's highlighting the the transformational nature of the spirit-controlled life. And And it is not passive. It's active.
1: When we do that, we also grow, don't we? We're helping them, but we're also growing our own faith, our relationship with God.
0: And our love for God and our love for people are developing, maturing along with us. Because these are all... That's why love is genuine love is at the header of all this. This is all the stuff that's fleshed out with agape love.
1: It's like at the time, the people who are of honor, the people of high status, kings and you know, commanders and stuff, and, and those people usually feel love, feel appreciated, feel that they are above everybody. But the common man does not. So this is kind of repeating, repeating the common man to be always telling them that you are appreciated, you are valuable you are good, you know, and
0: then reciprocally that's going to happen to another person and all of us need each other to feel like we are all valued because love. Exactly. we are in the image of God and we are loved by just Christ and saved by him and the grace of God. The church manifests the spiritual equality of human beings. May not be economic or socially equal, but spiritually equal. Galatians 3.28 Every single person that comes to Christ is equal at the cross. I'm not more saved than my wife. She's not more saved than me. And that spiritual equality means that you not only are showing honor to your leaders, you're showing honor to everyone, regardless of, of their status. And that, again, not to camp on this, but stress it, in the first century church, this was, was just so upending and upsettling for the Greco-Roman world, because they're seeing in these house churches slaves and masters worshiping together. That economic relationship of slave is how they live, but in the body of Christ, they're spiritually equal. And they're sitting together in the house church. They're worshiping together. I mean, that's just, you know, it's, it's again, it's so hard for us to understand how absolutely radical and revolutionary that was. For the Greco world to see this, where a master is honoring a slave. Now, Monday morning, that relationship is master-slave, but in the church. And that master then will reflect that in how he treats his slave,
1: but that's getting a little bit beyond the point that Paul's making here. All right?
0: Now, it's really amazing. It's 25 after 12, and we have only done four virtues. My goal was to do 12, but I'll not get them done, and it's all your fault. It's not mine. I'm not honoring you. I'm just kidding. All right. Verse 11, the fifth virtue. This is really funny how the ESV does this. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Those two go together, but they, they are separate. So let's take the first one. Do not be slothful in zeal. What is zeal? That's a great. That's the right way to translate it. uh, Zeal. Zeal is a noun. Zealous is an adjective. To be zealous is a verb. So, to to be zealous about something, to manifest zeal. What does that mean? Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Express. What? What
1: Expressive enthusiasm.
0: Okay. Expressive enthusiasm. Where do you see zeal? Well. You might see it on a football field, not Nebraska, but you might see it on a football field with the players. You might see it in the coaching staff where they're manifesting zeal for the game. Uh, you, you, would, you would see it in, uh, in I, I mean, I've, I've watched these little kids when my kids were growing up, and now watch other small children, or even as they get into middle school, how they go about playing soccer, or playing, you know, when they start with t ball and baseball or whatever, basketball, swimming. There's a zeal there, but there's no learning. They're just, you know, flashing their hands and their arms and something cool. But the zeal, the zeal has to be directed, the zeal has to be channeled, and the zeal has to be purpose driven, the zeal has to be focused. And so, it's strange, again, I read from the ESV translation, some of yours might be a little different, but do not be slothful in zeal. I mean, you know, my mother used to use the word sloth a lot. I don't think anybody I know of uses the word sloth in a normal conversation. But what does sloth or slothful mean? Lazy. Lazy? Did you ever, ever get down to the Henry Dorley Zoo and go into the jungle? You see up in the trees in the one part of the jungle exhibit a sloth. Do did you, did you know why they're called a sloth? Because you stand there and watch them. They don't do anything. For an hour, they don't do anything. You come back two hours later, they're still, you go into the restaurant, look down, they're still doing the same thing, laying there in the tree. They are the epitome of being slothful. They don't do anything. I mean, I assume they eat. I assume, I mean, but not anytime you observe the sloth in the zoo, they're never doing any of that. You can't be slothful
1: and be zealous. Can be very, What's that? You can be very lazy and very you know,
0: zealous being lazy. Yeah, that's a good point. You can't be very zealous being lazy. Actually, I do know a number of people like that. Their zeal is for laziness. So maximizing the
1: conservation.
0: There you go. (coughs) And they're zealous in pursuing that kind (laughs) of thing. So it's almost like an oxymoron to use those two words together. It really is crazy. But again, zeal needs to be channeled. Zeal needs to be directed. And lazy, slothful living is not the zeal that God wants. So the enthusiasm and the zeal of life, if I can put it that way, the enthusiasm and the zeal with life begins with Christ. And the enthusiasm and zeal you have for life centered in Christ means you will therefore be zealous for the things he's zealous for. Now, I'm really fleshing this out and embellishing this a bit, but that's the point he's making to be zealous means zeal must be channeled and directed not for self-serving purposes like I'm zealous for laziness and relaxing and sleeping I think you could say there are people like that but you should be zealous for the things that Jesus is zealous about the zeal for Christ So he adds to that an an additional virtue, or an additional aspect of that virtue. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So to not be slothful in zeal, instead fervent in spirit, literally in the Greek, burn with the spirit. Now some of your translations will have the word spirit capitalized. Some of your translations will have it in a lowercase s. There's quite a bit of debate about that. Are we to be fervent, burn in our human spirit with zeal? Or is he saying burn in your, in your energy and power through the Holy Spirit so that your zeal is then channeled in the right direction? Because what God wants you to do is serve him. So I mean, just take those three little couplets together. That's the virtue. The virtue is zeal. But the the virtue of zeal is not being slothful, lazy, and none of them. Burn with the Holy Spirit. I prefer to. <coughs> you see, it's a capital S. Burn with the Spirit because He gives you the enabled and empower to do what? Serve the Lord. So your zeal is serving the Lord. How do I serve the Lord through the burning power of the Holy Spirit, and that, that Holy Spirit <coughs> indwelt you the moments you were justified? Exactly, it's there now. Draw on it. Yeah, the power there now. Draw on it. So Jesus. this is, a, and that's how Paul is doing now. He's now moving. You you you. I do on honor now. Even more active now. Zeal enabled by the. Burning with the power of the Spirit as you serve the Lord. Jim, so, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't excitement come in there somewhere? You could be excited about your faith and and, oh, and, yes, and how absolutely. your life is going. That's right. That's right. You always are excited about biblical truth, Woody. And that is reflecting the zeal that he wants to see in your life. Thank you. You're modeling that for us. So, I mean, you just see, this is, this is another one of these... Radical, transformational, lifestyle changes. Zeal, but a zeal that's sourced in the power of the Spirit. You're burning with the power of the Spirit as you serve the Lord. And serving the Lord, that's that's a broad command. I mean, goodness. (laughs) There's almost no boundaries to serving the Lord. But you see, almost, I think this would be true, almost all human beings are zealous for something. They have zeal for something, whatever it is in their lives. Paul is saying, transfer that zeal to serving the Lord. And God has given you the power and enablement to do that. But you have to draw on it by faith. Burn with the Spirit. And so again, I mean, this is really a transformational command in our lives that it takes time for us for this to develop. This does not happen overnight. One of my frequently listened to podcasts had an episode where the host, um, I'm going to mention his name, Robert Morgan, was interviewing three other PhD theologians. And they were talking about biblical zeal. Mm. And Morgan expressed it as to you're so excited about it mm. that you've come to the point of tears. Mm. So his, I guess his view, I'm not sure I understood properly, but his view was if you get excited enough, you're, you're going to be on the verge of tears. Well, I think that's, that would be one of the things that you do see in your life. In this journey with the Lord. That that zeal and enthusiasm can even have that emotional residue of tears. We saw that with
1: Jesus as a uh, part of mm-hmm. Could you Consider consider how
0: how different the, the Christian in the first century would be showing this zeal on all the, the other Jews are oppressed by the Roman rule and and all the other rules that they've been Mm -hmm. subjected to for thousands of years. Um, Mm -hmm. They're they're downtrodden and here's this bunch of people running around all Mm -hmm. Zeal. Yeah. Zeal for the Lord. Zeal for the Lord. And that's uh now I can make a real cynical comment and I think I might make it to illustrate. I have seen many evangelical Christians have
1: an enormous level of zeal for a politician
0: and not the same level of zeal for Jesus. I'm just going to let that lie there. Let you think about it. And um, so, (laughs) moving along, number six. You mean we've only done five? Oh, okay. And 25 of them, we've only done five. Fifth or sixth one, middle of, beginning of verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Now, again, these are the virtues in our relationship with believers. Rejoice in hope. Now, I don't think of any difficulty understanding joy or rejoice. But let's review and think about hope here. Give me. A Biblical definition of genuine, biblical, Christ-centered hope. Hope and forgiveness. Or or
1: I don't think it's open forgiveness. Hope and grace for... <clears throat> I, I, you know, I would take that back. I, we don't
0: have hope and forgiveness. We have an assurance. For That's right. That. Yeah. Hope, would you agree? Hope is a future-centered work. Right? It means... You have hope about something is going to happen next hour, next year, whatever. And the, the, the Bible always speaks of hope with what object? Who's the object of our hope? Christ returns to Christ by time. Romans 8, 24, 25. That's it. The, 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 the hope of the believer is centered... On the promise Jesus Christ made in John 14, I'm coming back for you. And so in Titus 2.13, Paul speaks as he's talking to Titus, the blessed hope of the church. What's the blessed hope of the church? Jesus coming back. (laughs) The Bible says over and over and over again, Jesus says in all the discourse that's repeated, you don't know when that's going to happen. You do not know when Christ is coming back. And so Jesus says, you do not know when Christ is coming back. So two things, be ready and be faithful. So hope, my, I studied in a man who defined hope in this way. Expectancy with desire. I've never forgotten that. It's short, it's pithy, very easy to remember. Expectancy. You expect it to happen. It's not, there's not a doubt about it. You're not certain it's going to happen? No. You know it's going to happen with desire. You want it to happen. The Bible speaks, the Greek word is, the Bible speaks of tiptoe expectation, tiptoe excitement about Jesus coming back. The early church would say over and over again, we have it in, uh, it's actually in one of the New Testament verses, but we had a lot of extra biblical literature. They would say, they would say, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come. The expectation, the hope, the excitement, today might be the day Jesus goes back. We don't think that way. In 2022, our hope, we hope that Nebraska wins on Saturday. That's the hope, and everything's geared toward that. We devote our whole lives to that. I'm exaggerating, you know I am, but, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Paul says, rejoice in hope. I have a a lot of friends in North Omaha. I, I did a lot of work up there over the years. But one of my pastor friends up there says, my people cannot live without hope. And I've never forgotten what he said there. And I've thought about that over and over again. That is really true of a human being. If people do not have hope for tomorrow, It makes today very difficult. Now listen, we live in a fallen, broken world. The hope is not, uh, we're going to vote in two weeks, we're going to have a whole bunch of new politicians that are going to solve everything. If you really believe that, you have absolutely no historical perspective, you have absolutely no conviction about really what a fallen, broken world looks like. Politicians and politics is not the solution to the human problem. It's not that that isn't important, but your hope—everything's going to be made right when Jesus comes back, because things are never going to be right till He comes back. And these are people who lived in the Greco-Roman world, and these crazy Caesars were ruling, and taxation was unbelievably oppressive, et cetera, et cetera. Their hope wasn't in—well, maybe when a new Caesar comes to the throne, it's going to be better. That's not how they thought. Their focus is when Jesus comes back, everything will be made right. You've read some, I think you have, some of the lyrics of what used to be called the Negro spirituals. The slaves in the American South before the Civil War, the songs they sang focused on Jesus coming back for them and making everything right. My master's not going to make everything right. But when Jesus comes back, Swing low, sweet chair, you know, singing, but some of those. It gives that sense. That's what Paul's saying. The believer's virtue is a future-oriented set of promises that Jesus made to us. That's the content of my hope. I rejoice in that. Now, to who the next leader is, that's very important. We're to vote, to be involved, but it's a realistic understanding. Our hope is in Christ. The blessed hope of the church. Titus two thirty, And I, I just love how he puts that. Rejoice in hope. Isn't hope like it's a wide spectrum of hope that I don't know if it's ever going to happen and hope that I have assurance to happen? You can't bring it up as if it's an assurance. You know, I, I, I believe that Jesus will come. I don't have... Is it, is it hope that he will come or I know he's coming or... You know, there's a white spectrum. But one of the things, but one of the things that's always important: do not make a wish the synonym for hope. I wish this. I wish I would get a million dollars. Well, that's ridiculous. I don't play the lottery. I don't have any rich relatives. You know, I'm retired. I mean, that's not going to happen. So to say, I wish for a million dollars is ridiculous. That's a that's a baseless is not that a great word, vacuous statement. But if I say, I hope Jesus is coming back for me. I'm not saying I wish Jesus would run back for us. The word hope has certainty to it. The word hope has absolute certainty to it. Jesus promised us in John 14. And he says it over and over and over again. But he says, don't be anxious, he's saying to the disciples. Frustrated and hurt that he's going back to the father. Don't be anxious. In my father's place are many, in my father's uh, mansion, in my father's house, there are many mansions, many, many rooms. I'm going to prepare one for you. And I will come back for you. I will come back for you. That's what my wife says at all. She, my wife says that all the time. When Jesus comes back, everything will be made right. I won't have to deal with rabbits eating my impatience. I won't have to dig dandelions out of my garden. And I'm using a little thing that she talked about in the summer months. But, you know, she's she struggling with arthritis. She has an autoimmune disease. She has a heart condition. She says when Jesus comes back, all this will be made right. And, I mean, that's, that's the rejoice and the hope. Not to rejoice in our present circumstances. Because that's hard sometimes. Because life's like this, but rejoice in the hope. Jesus made so The future promise of Christ should affect how we live today. Future promises affect present behavior. Rejoice in hope. To me, that's life life transformational. And Chuck, I know your dear wife and all that's happened with her, but the focus for you is rejoice in the hope. She's not always going to be like this. When she gets her new body, she's going to be whole. And I mean, that, that's the rejoicing of hope. Not the circumstance you're in right now. That's hard. And these, these early Christians are being, they're being persecuted, they're being thrown in prison, their property's taken from them, they're homeless, and they're walking around rejoicing in hope. You read Second Corinthians chapter 12, and you read all the things that happened to Paul, he's still rejoicing in hope. They're thrown into a prison in Philippi. What are they doing when the angel comes? There's an earthquake, all the shackles are thrown off. What are they doing? They're sitting in prison, still singing hymns to the Lord. And the Philippian jailer cannot understand what they're doing, <coughs> which then causes him, ultimately, <coughs> I'm still getting over this hacking, so apologize for that. And I'm getting excited, and that's why I'm getting all stirred up. All right, everybody with me on this one? Can we do another one? I think we can. This is the last one. Number seven, be patient in tribulation. <laughs> tribulation is it's, it's a typical word for difficult difficult times but it's a tribulation it's sometimes translated trial for a greater purpose Corey Ten Boom said nothing happens to us that is not first filtered through the hands of our loving heavenly father
1: you believe that? Yeah.
0: I mean, if God's sovereign, his providence is real, then there is no such thing as a coincidence. And so Paul is saying, let's, let's be patient in trials. Be patient in tribulation. James, the brother of Jesus, in his epistle helps us to understand this. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Because this is how God grows you. I'm summarizing well, three verses. And Jim? Yes? I think we saw that with, uh, with Christians during COVID. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? You saw a continued peace with believers that, yeah. especially during lockdown, that unbelievers were really unsettled. Yeah, yeah. I, I think here is one of those virtues that when we really start to see it lived out, we do really see the supernatural transformational work of God's Spirit in our lives. So, to be patient in tribulation means we understand what God's doing. We don't understand the details. We can ask God, Why are you doing this? Why are you letting this happen? But ultimately, to be patient is to allow whatever God wants to do through this to be accomplished. That is really hard. That is really hard. Um, Gentlemen, I'm going to really have to quit here. But um, let's see. I'll pick up next week kind of in the middle of verse 12. And we'll just continue to press on. Um, I probably will not write this up on the board again because. It's going to take us till 2024 to finish this at the rate we're going. So the, the church would not want to leave it up there at long. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. Great. I'll get it out. Okay. Very good. I'm going to pray here and then I'll let you all go because I've got to get to my next class. And our Father, we thank you for the challenge that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of your Spirit, gives for us in this marvelous passage of scripture what a challenge this is what a what a challenge to how we're living our lives and how we look at our lives and these words like love in verse 9 words like honor words like affection words like zeal uh, words like rejoice in hope lord they are transformational words they're the terms that as we unpack them and, and think about them and apply them really illustrate what the what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives as we're on this journey with you, this journey from life to eternity, this journey from the old life which you saved us from to the new life which we're embracing. And we thank you for the, the power you give us through your Spirit, for the, the Word of God that we read and study that he uses to transform us. So, Lord, help us to be challenged by these, to make the changes in our lives, Because these are not passive things. This is an active pursuit in our walk with you. So help us each one, whatever the needs are specifically, help each one of us to allow you to continue your work of transforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus through your spirit. Commit these men to you as we go our separate ways now. Use us, help us to be your representatives, to be your ambassadors, to be your salt and light, for your glory, and for the honor that comes with serving Christ, we pray. Amen.